always thought I'd be the kind of grandmother who just, you know, rushes in, takes over the housework, enchants the children somehow. Actually, I do none of that. And I came home and I coughed for six weeks. And I said, okay, something is wrong here. I've got to get deeper than this. I've got to figure out what's really at the root of my problems because I'm, I'm not spending my life like this. Welcome to Lifespan. I'm Jackie Wolf. Chronic illness is commonly defined as a condition lasting longer than three months. Asthma, diabetes, and rheumatoid arthritis are all examples of chronic diseases. It's a condition the sufferer simply learns to live with. That's because chronic illnesses are treatable, but not curable. Jennifer Grayson is an environmental historian and Huffington Post columnist whose work has appeared in USA Today and The Washington Post. She's also the author of a wonderful book, Unlatched, The Evolution of Breastfeeding and the Making of a Controversy, published in 2016 by HarperCollins, and the host of the Uncivilized podcast. Jennifer lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two young daughters. She was in high school when she began to suffer from a series of serious, unexplained symptoms. My health started deteriorating, I'd say, in high school, just a couple years after adolescence. Would you mind if I tell you a little bit what I was like as a child and before everything happened? No, please. Go ahead. I was definitely one of those kids who you would describe as unstoppable. My mom describes me as a sponge. According to her, I walked at nine and a half months. I was reading at three. I was one of those kids with just nonstop activities, all not of my parents doing, but my own. I just wanted to like absorb everything around me. I played little league and I did soccer and I played piano and I said, I did everything. And so I was this really like exuberant, outgoing, nonstop kind of kid. And then midway through high school, I started feeling tired all the time. I had always been a really, really skinny kid in shape and, and doing physical activity. And all of a sudden I had trouble controlling my weight, even though we were very healthy eaters. I started having what you would describe now as, as Raynaud's, where you get these really cold hands and feet. And my fingers would turn blue and I would feel cold all the time. I had trouble controlling my temperature. And so all of these things that kind of point to classic thyroid symptoms. So I went to my family physician. I had thyroid testing done and everything seemed fine. I had mono testing done. I had Lyme disease testing done. And all the while, my health just kept deteriorating. My mom finally took me to another doctor who ran a different kind of mono test, and it turns out I did have mono. So that was like a, a momentary aha. I was home for a month. I didn't go to school. This was right before graduation, and then I started feeling a little bit better. Well, fast forward to me going to college, and I started getting worse again. It was basically more of what kept happening, and so I became a vegetarian, and then all of a sudden I was trying to become a vegan and I wasn't eating a very healthy diet and I was away from school and I was probably really missing my mom and my brother and I was depressed and my health just kept spiraling downhill. I ended up transferring schools after my freshman year and by the time I was a sophomore or a junior, I had what most would describe now as chronic fatigue syndrome. That doesn't sound too scary, but it was at the point where I felt like I was literally dying as a 20-year-old. I couldn't get out of bed. I had nonstop brain fog all the time. I started having horrendous panic attacks. And then I started getting this constellation of all sorts of other health ailments that seemed to be linked to it. So I had acid reflux and I had chronic yeast infections. And so I just was, I was a complete mess basically. And no one could tell me what was wrong. 
And I saw internal medicine doctors. I saw gastroenterologists. I saw neurologists. I was 20 years old and I had a whole series of brain MRIs done. They thought maybe something was wrong with me neurologically. And so I had this whole brain scan done. He sat me down in his office after and he said, well, you know, young lady, I've seen people with your constellation of symptoms before and they do really, really well with a combination of three drugs, Prozac, Celebrex, and he named some other super powerful anti-inflammatory. And I thought, oh my God, I'm 20 years old. This is the top neurologist in Boston. And he is literally telling me that a 20 year old should be on this cocktail of super powerful drugs. And that that's the answer. And then I just thought, well, this, there is something wrong with the system. I've got to get deeper than this. I got to figure out what's really at the root of my problems because th- I'm, I'm not spending my life like this. And I should also add, being in college, there's also the constellation of you're away from home for the first time, you could be depressed, you could be lonely, or you are depressed and lonely, as many college freshmen are. So I bet there are also doctors saying, oh, it's just depression. Oh, it's just, you know, you'll snap out of it. So you're probably being told that as well. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And especially when you're a young woman describing symptoms that are very intangible. I mean, it's not like I was going into a doctor and saying, I'm vomiting three times a day and I can't keep food down. And with these very clear symptoms, it's this very diffuse collection of symptoms, chronic fatigue. And I also had this pain all around my chest area so that I had trouble breathing in that some people thought they called it casochondritis, like an inflammation of the cartilage surrounding my ribs. And so all of these things that a doctor could look at you and say, you know, well, maybe this is all in your head. This went on for four years until my senior year. It got worse and worse and worse until by my senior year, when what I just described with the neurologist in Boston, that happened my senior year in college. And so, yeah, it was four years of going to different doctors, trying to actually get through school. The sad thing is I don't have a lot of memories of college. And I think part of it is because I was just, my health was so horrible at the time that I blocked out so much of that so much of that time period, it absolutely affected everything. I had transferred. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania my freshman year. Like I said, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then I had ended up transferring to a music school to become an operatically trained singer. When you're in a conservatory and you're a singer, it's a very physical thing. So obviously I had a lot of academic subjects, which were difficult, like music theory. And then you take all the other prerequisite courses that every other college kid has to take. But you're also like performing in operas and having to take singing lessons. And and when you're physically fatigued, it's really, really tough. I met my husband when I was 19 years old. He also went to the conservatory where I went to school, New England Conservatory. And it was basically like the two of us. He was like my best friend through school. He was the one who got me through it. That was really like the turning point for me when I thought, this is crazy. We've got to get to the bottom of this. And my mom of course, was desperate to help and and find what was wrong. And so she started calling around. We're talking about like 99, 2000, when people were first starting to talk really about holistic physicians, alternative physicians. And so she found someone in Connecticut who dealt with people with chronic fatigue and unbeknownst to me, undiagnosed thyroid disorders. And so I went in and I had his testing done. The conventional thyroid testing at the time missed people who were actually hypothyroid. And so I went in and he tested me and I was not only severely hypothyroid, but I was also, I had hypoadrenalism, which was connected to the hypothyroidism. 
I finally had someone who was like, yes, there is something wrong with you and here's how we're going to treat it. I was put on thyroid medication and he didn't use what most doctors treat for thyroid. It's, it's kind of a controversy, but you know, there are a lot of thyroid patients. The traditional way of treating hypothyroidism was with armor thyroid, which is the whole desiccated thyroid from pigs. And that's different than what a lot of conventional doctors prescribe, which is a lab-produced T4 or T3 compound. And so he prescribed Armour Thyroid. One of the first things you think of if someone is complaining about being very fatigued is about your thyroid. So did no one, no one do any thyroid testing up until that point? Everyone had done thyroid testing. I had had, done, I had had thyroid testing done by my pediatrician, my internal medicine doctor, by the neurologist. I mean, it wasn't for lack of testing. I also always had presented with a, um, a swollen thyroid area. So even when I went into a doctor for the first time, they would always palpate this area on my neck and say, I wonder if you have a thyroid condition, but it never showed up in the, whatever the lab tests were. So what exactly did this doctor test for that showed up differently than what other doctors had tested for? It was a kind of testing that is probably widely in use today, but at the time was not being used, um, that just looked for different markers. And I had many doctors after that who also changed my life because that wasn't even really the end of my story. Because even after my thyroid was diagnosed, it wasn't like I was magically better. I still had all these this constellation of issues, most notably the hypoadrenalism. So I was on this low dose of steroids to try to control that. And I had wanted to wean off those steroids because I didn't want to be on them for a very long time. And for whatever reason, I couldn't get off of them. And so I ended up, as I moved to different parts of the country, seeing different doctors who had to rejigger my thyroid medication and find a different thing for me so that I could get off the other medications that I was on. And so I wound up seeing some other amazing doctors too. I've been well now, I mean, consistently well, in perfect health, other than the fact that I have to take a compounded thyroid medication every morning. I've been in perfect health for the past eight years. My diagnosis is that I have hypothyroidism. But what I should also add is during all of this, the other problem I had was that I couldn't get health insurance. So I spent most of my 20s without health insurance because I had a pre-existing condition because they had seen that I had a thyroid diagnosis. And at the time, I was also a struggling musician. I probably spent about a third of my income each year, my very meager income, on having to pay all of this for out-of-pocket costs and my family having to help me pay for these exorbitant expenses too. I also had to delay having a family because of it. Because I couldn't get insurance, I didn't want to become pregnant and then have to pay $20,000 for a hospital delivery. We would have had a family a couple years earlier and we couldn't because I couldn't get health insurance. So the two things together, the not being able to get the health care I needed because I was denied coverage combined with, you know, just navigating the frustrations of the healthcare system and, and not being able to find a doctor who could really help me. It was horrible, which is probably why I'm having a hard time recalling a lot of this because I've blocked so much of it out. There are doctors who are good at asking questions and there are doctors who don't want to ask those questions and who actually get angry when patients ask those questions because they feel like you're questioning their authority. So I've been lucky that the doctors I've found now I would describe them as like real partners in my healthcare because I have to be the one to describe what's going on in my body and to tell them if what they're doing is working or not for the treatment to be able to work. And so it takes a while to find those doctors, but there are, I, there are a lot of them out there. You do have to become a researcher. 
there's amazing information out there. You just really have to learn how to dig through it. Not accepting what doctors tell you. If a doctor tells you that it's all in your head or just take this pill and you know it, you know in your heart that that doesn't feel right, then you have to question that. No matter what, it is not going to hurt you and it will undoubtedly help you to adopt a real food, whole foods diet to start getting regular sleep every night, moderate exercise every day. I mean, those like common sense things that most people don't do anymore can make such a profound difference to your health. While Jennifer's exhaustion struck her when she was in high school, Emily Abel's fatigue struck well into adulthood after treatment for breast cancer. The fatigue has shaped her life ever since. Emily is a medical historian with an array of interests that include chronic illness, women's health, and healthcare taking in the home. She's retired from her longtime position at the University of California at Los Angeles, although she's still an active researcher and writer. As a medical historian, she brings a unique perspective to her own experience with post-cancer fatigue. In 1993, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I underwent surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And my doctor said, well, you know, this is going to take a lot out of you, but after a year, you're going to feel better. So I just waited. You know, I I just assumed she was right. And my hair came back and my scar diminished, but I continued to have this really deep, overwhelming fatigue that just never changed. Researchers have identified something called post cancer fatigue. Fatigue has so many dimensions. It can be cognitive, physical, emotional, various things. Mine clearly is mental. I do have trouble describing it, except to say that stimulation is really difficult for me. Sometimes I just have to be in a dark room without any stimulation. I mean, I was a very energetic person. It's one way that I know what a difference this made in my life because I have a sister two years older than me and another sister two years younger than me. And when I look at what they can do and then I think about what I can do, it's just night and day. And, you know, we're all getting older, so we're all slowing down somewhat, but... Um, they still do many things in their lives, and they work, and they teach. So your, your doctor told you, give yourself about a year, you're going to feel a lot better, you'll be back to your normal self, and then you weren't. Did you go back to the doctor to talk to her about it? Yes. I see my oncologist regularly at that point. I was seeing her for periodic examinations, and I told her that I was tired, uh, had this tiredness, and she said, that she thought that scientists would discover a drug to resolve it. And I was certain I didn't want to take another medication into my body. Also, I didn't really want to pursue it with her because I still saw her somewhat as my savior. And I was worried about a recurrence. And I wanted her to concentrate on that. Compared to a recurrence, fatigue seemed really sort of insignificant. Um, And I also wanted her to see me as a good patient, and I understood that doctors like people better if they've gotten better. And here I was, you know, I didn't have a recurrence, and years later I haven't. So I I just wanted to keep being that good patient whom whom she could like. I did go to my internist, 
And he sent me for a test for the Epstein-Barr virus. And then a few days later, he called to tell me that, that I had tested positive on that and that I had chronic fatigue syndrome. But then I reported the results to another doctor, and he told me that scientists had discredited the findings about a connection between Epstein-Barr and chronic fatigue. I guess this happened about 20 years ago. Since then, I've seen him at least once a year, often, of course, many more times. I never mention it to him because I just assume he has nothing to tell me, and I just you know, he asks how I am, I say, I'm fine, because in all the ways he's looking for people to be fine. I have a colleague who is a breast cancer oncologist, and she told me very confidently that my problem was depression. Actually, I knew it wasn't depression because I'd had depression, and this felt totally different. But I dutifully went off to a psychiatrist who told me I didn't seem so depressed, I just seemed very tired. That's about all I did. I mean, I didn't go to other doctors. I just thought nobody had anything to say to me that could be helpful. People were always giving me suggestions. You know, I should go to acupuncture, biofeedback, more acupuncture, general healings. I was really wary at first because I grew up in the post-war period when we really thought that medical science would find a cure for every affliction. In my family, we would never go to any kind of alternative healer. And because I'm a medical historian, I knew that more and more people were trusting alternative medicine, and everybody was telling me to go. So I went. And um, I liked it in the beginning because the practitioners would sit there and they would ask me all about myself. And finally, I got to tell my story, and they would be so sympathetic. And they would all think I was great because they thought they could help me. You know, they'd say, oh, you don't have vital force or you don't have chi or you don't have something else. And somehow they always could tell that or maybe they just learned that from what I told them. And I'd think, okay, I'll give this person three months. And then after a number of sessions, I would say, hmm, I don't think this is working. I I'd start canceling sessions, and they never encouraged me to come back. I think they just realized they had nothing, they really had nothing for me. How did it affect work and teaching? How does it affect socializing on a day-to-day level? How, how does it affect other aspects of your life? A few months after chemotherapy ended, I went back to teaching, and it just, it felt like a totally different enterprise. I was just exhausted after a very short time. I would start worrying about if I had the energy to drive home. It was actually sort of scary. And then about a year after I finished, Rick and I went to New York for a sabbatical. And I love New York. <laughs> you know, I, it, it feels like home. The Upper West Side really is my home in certain kinds of ways. And it was just a totally different place. You know, I used to just walk down Broadway, and I don't know if you know Broadway, but it has all these shops, it has all these crowds. It was so exciting. I used to just want to be in at Broadway. Instead, I just would take refuge in parks. I never went on subways. My husband went to concerts and plays alone at night. It was just a totally different city, and it's 
pretty much remained that way. You know, nobody could give me a diagnosis and nobody could cure it. And nobody knew what to do. So I did have to reorder my life. So when I'm not at a conference and I'm not so completely exhausted, I basically do one activity outside the house each day. I go to sleep pretty early, very early, actually. My friends get really annoyed with me because I'm always leaving events. And I miss the time I have with them. If I keep to a certain schedule, I, I'm okay. I always thought I'd be the kind of grandmother who just, you know, rushes in, takes over the housework, enchants the children somehow, takes them on exciting expeditions. Actually, I do none of that. What I do is respond to the kids and sit there and talk to them because I just, I, I love to do that. But I never go on expeditions with them. My husband takes them alone and I always then go and nap. The kids start to wonder why I'm still taking naps. After one by one, they outgrow them and wonder why I'm still taking them. That's actually some of the hardest for me because it's something I don't want to miss, but I have to cut back a lot. How do you explain it to your grandchildren? Do they ask? You know, it's interesting. The first two, whom I know the best, they never ask and they take it as a matter of course. Then I have two other grandchildren and the older girl would say, why Why are you always tired? Why won't you play more? I don't like this. So her mother tried to explain. I thought they didn't notice too much until one girl who was about seven at the time, we were going out to dinner. And she said, well, Grandma, you're not coming, are you? And I said, well, yes, I am. And she said, oh, because, you know, I just noticed you never go on expeditions with us. So I, I realized, yeah, they, they do notice. Yeah, kids notice everything. Even when you don't think they're looking, they're, they're staring right at you. Right. And it's interesting that the older two have never asked me, and now they're 16 and 14. When we lived close to them, Rick would often babysit on a Saturday night when they were younger, and I'd go and I'd spend a couple hours, and then I'd go home and go to bed, and he'd stay on until the parents came home. And... When there were school holidays, he always, they live in Brooklyn, he would always take them into the city and they'd have all these exciting times. They never asked me why I didn't go. It was just, well, that's what he did and that's what I did. So sometimes they notice and sometimes they just accept the way things are because they're trying to make sense of the world. They accept a lot. Exactly. And, and you know, grandparents play a certain role and individual grandparents play a certain role and that's just the way it is. Yeah. You mentioned before some, you know, friends can get annoyed with you because they want to see you more and they miss you and, you know, want to see you around more. Has, has this created conflicts with family members, with friends? My children have been wonderful. You know, they don't have to live with me. <laughs> so... Um, so they listen to me and they accept it and they they take very nice care of me, actually. When I visit them, they always make sure, you know, I'm not doing too much and that they find me quiet places to take a nap. I mean, they're, they're really great, but of course, they don't have to put up with me all the time. Friends, you know, friends, it it just varies, but a lot of friends just don't understand. And sometimes I think they don't really believe me. 
I have a good friend who, actually, he was also a colleague, and he had brain surgery about, I don't know, 10 years ago, and he said to me, oh, Emily, now I see what you were talking about. He didn't mean he was just he was feeling it the first time. He really meant that he had never believed me. You know, I wonder if your expertise has has contributed to your understanding of this. As a medical historian, I would venture to say that no one understands the limits of medicine as well as historians of medicine do. I think that helped. I met a medical sociologist about 10, 15 years ago, and I suggested to her that she interview people who had had breast cancer and had symptoms that they didn't understand. Because when I talked to other survivors, they all said, oh, yeah, they're fine, they're fine. And then if I'd say, well, you know, I'm not so fine, they'd, sometimes they'd, they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, some strange things have been happening to me. And they, too, had had, um, just couldn't understand some persistent problems. So the medical sociologist interviewed 80 women, half African-American, half white, and I wrote it up. And that was interesting because I did find I was absolutely not alone. It was something people didn't talk about, but it was more common than I thought. So many of the treatments in medical history have either been proven ineffective or dangerous. That's absolutely true. I got chemotherapy at a specific time. It was 1993. There was a belief that more was better. I remember my oncologist would sit there and try and figure out how much I should get at different times because I found it very hard to tolerate it. And she would always say, oh, well, I'm just going to give you the most you can possibly stand. They do much less chemotherapy now. It's very likely that if I had the kind of diagnosis that I had, that people would say, oh, skip chemotherapy entirely. So I try not to get too angry about that. (laughs) I also think they saved my life, but maybe they didn't have to do everything they did. More and more studies have come out, and there started to be reports of something called post-cancer fatigue. That's, that's what they call it. I don't know if people know that name much. And what they found out is as many as 25% of women who undergo both chemotherapy and radiation for breast cancer experience fatigue at least 10 years after the end of treatment. And that the fatigue can be very damaging to quality of life and that depression often coexists with fatigue, but should not be considered the cause. And in fact, the oncologist who said to me very confidently, oh, Emily, you are depressed, and sent me on to a psychiatrist, she actually apologized to me about 10 years later, and she said, you know, we just didn't know, we didn't understand. That's been helpful to me, and I wish I had known that earlier, because... I would have had a medical label to tell people. I wouldn't have expected my fatigue to end so quickly. I wouldn't have blamed myself when I didn't recover as quickly as I expected to. There are more and more women surviving after breast cancer treatment, so it's become much more noticeable. I think also they were giving such aggressive treatment when I 
was undergoing treatment, I still think doctors don't really listen. But, of course, I felt ambivalent about that with my oncologist, you know. I just wanted her to make sure I didn't have a recurrence. That was her job. If she asked me about fatigue, I'd say something, but I didn't make a thing about it because she didn't seem to know much about it. I didn't know what good it would do. So I wanted her to look at all the results of all my tests and show me that I was going to survive, and that's what I did. I do think my internist should have asked a little, especially after I told him that I didn't have chronic fatigue, but we just we just didn't discuss it. You know, he comes in, he looks to see what tests I need, he writes up the charges for those tests, he pretty much walks out, and that's that. And I think you're describing a lot of people's experiences, too, just yes. with medicine on a, on, a, on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And so I've become really interested in people like Rita Sharon, who talks about narrative medicine and what you can learn by actually listening to patients. But I think most doctors can't do that or don't do that or haven't been trained to do that or don't have enough time to do that. She says there can be something healing in telling your story. And I think that's true. I think if people had listened to me and didn't say, oh, no tests have revealed that, are you sure? Are you sure you're not depressed? Maybe you have post-traumatic stress syndrome. We can't legitimize this. It's just something you say. But if they had just listened to me and listened to how it affected my life, I, I think that would have helped me. Like Emily, Mary Ellen Crodo found that her health problem was affecting her daily activities, indeed everything she loved to do. Mary Ellen is a prolific artist who employs a number of mediums. For years, she worked in her studio in Chicago with polyester resins, fiberglass, liquid latex, and other toxic materials without a facial mask. She now suffers from occupation-related respiratory disease. I first found out I had this illness because I had visited my sister in Detroit, and she's a chronic smoker. I had gotten colds a couple times in that past year and coughed for like, you know, a month and a half after the colds. But I thought, okay, so that was a bad cold. And so then I went to my sister's for a couple of days to help her, and I couldn't literally breathe. I had to go outside. I had to stick my head out the window in order to breathe. And I came home, and I coughed for six weeks. And I said, okay, something is wrong here. So I went to see my doctor, and he did a, a x-ray, and he said, okay, you're going to have to go in to this, see this pulmonologist because there's something in the x-ray. So the first doctor I went to, he said, okay, you've got this disease. It's going to kill you. It's going to go to pulmonary fibrosis if you don't do X, Y, Z, which was specifically take prednisone and then take immunosuppressants and then stop working. I just had to stop working. And I'm an artist. What I do is make art. And I felt that was just a little rude of him. He didn't understand what I did. He didn't have any idea of what I did. But he just said, just stop making art. You have to stop making art. How did he tie your symptoms to your artwork? He didn't. He just said that there are people who get this because they're bird fanciers or they're farmers. There's probably mold involved. But those are the people who get it. And it's tied to their livelihood, so you need to stop being an artist. <laughs> you know? Well, it was also, I thought, a bit 
paternalistic and condescending. I mean, what if I was drawing with charcoal or pencil? You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to make art. I mean, he just, he didn't even ask what I did. He just assumed. But I didn't actually follow his recommendations to take prednisone right away and the immunosuppressants. Actually, what happened was I didn't have any other symptoms for another nine months. I had gone away just soon after that to a residency in um, Upper Quebec, Canada, and felt pretty good, actually, and came back, and my husband had had our whole building, mold remediation, which was also a suggestion. About one year later, after the original diagnosis, I got another CAT scan, and I went in, and the doctor said, oh, it looks great. You look like you're improving. This is wonderful. (laughs) Go get a pneumonia vaccine, which... I said, okay, so I went to get the pneumonia vaccine, and they gave me this vaccine, Prevnar, which supposedly is against like 13 or 17 different types of pneumonia, which wasn't the type I would normally be exposed to, but they gave it to me, and within three days, I started coughing, and I haven't stopped coughing since. I started coughing after this, and I coughed for another like three months. And so I went to the doctor and I said, okay, we're ready now to take, you know, to take the prednisone. So I took this prednisone and I had a violent reaction to it. I started sweating and I was shaking and I couldn't sleep and I was having strange psychotic ideations. I just wanted to kill somebody for no reason. And then the doctor wanted me to go on half a dose. And I said, I don't think so. I'm not doing this again, you know. So... It went on, and I kept coughing, and things didn't get better, but I decided to see a different doctor, and I got my regular physician to recommend someone, and she was wonderful. She kind of told me in the first place that not everybody can take prednisone. She was very honest. She said, you know, there's not been many studies on this at all, and the, the results of those studies were not overwhelming, and so it's not clear there's anything we can do for you. So what was it about the building that you were living in that you felt like you couldn't live there anymore? How was the building you were living in connected to your illness? I had rehabbed all the apartments myself, um, mostly, meaning I had stripped and varnished and stained all this elaborate woodwork and painted, and I never used a respirator, I should have, and I probably knew better and didn't do it anyway, but I think that that predetermined me to have this kind of like lung problem, but I've also done a lot of different art materials, everything from polyester resins, you know, fiberglass stuff to to liquid latex and to other materials. Oil paints and and solvents are also not very good to be breathing, you know, over a period of time. So I think that those predisposed me to this, but the building, being so old, had mold in it, and having the mold abatement helped a lot. But then we also have tenants, and new tenants that we had really did not control for mold, and they let it grow wild in their apartment, and so it just came through the wall into my apartment. So I was not able to really control how other people were living their lives. So the only thing to do was to to sell the building because I couldn't keep it up anymore. That was the best studio in the world. Every artist just that, that would come over, they would say like, oh, this is so nice, 12-foot ceilings. My brother did the lighting. He's a lighting specialist. It was perfectly balanced, and, and I never had a shadow. I could take 
pictures of anything, and it was really lovely. <laughs> it was quite large. So um, I really miss it because now I'm working in a very dark 1950s paneled basement, and I, I, it, it makes a huge difference in the work I'm doing. Describe how else it's affected your life, aside from the fact that you, you, know, you gave up your studio. Has it eroded other areas of your life as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's very difficult for me to keep up like I used to. I just feel like I don't have the, the, the energy. I can't run very much. I can, climbing stairs is a problem. I, you know, I get winded. I don't have as much lung capacity anymore. So it does affect pretty much everything I do. I went to a family reunion camping trip, and I have siblings who smoke, and I couldn't be near them. I could not be near them. Because they would just light up and, you know, the smoke would blow around and I couldn't, I knew I couldn't smell it because I know it's a trigger for me. I know I react badly to it. So, um, yeah, things like that, you know, I have to stay away from some family members. I would definitely say to any person who is an artist or working with crafts or with their hands that if you have any exposure to anything, even sawdust, you should always wear a respirator. Protect your lungs. There's just too much junk in the environment already that you're exposed to to add that burden to your lungs. And it's better to be safe than sorry, I guess, you know. I was told when I was younger that you should protect yourself with respirators and with protective gloves, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I took it in and I thought about it, but I didn't really do it when I needed to do it, which was, you know, I guess it's, guess, guess it's human. You know? <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I really would recommend that anybody who uses anything that might be toxic to definitely use a respirator or safety. If you would like to see samples of Mary Ellen Croto's artwork, you can find a link to her website in the description of this podcast. My favorite is her seven-foot self-portrait, all done with bottle caps. Katie Kropf is an assistant professor and family physician at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in Athens, Ohio. She listened with interest to Jennifer's, Emily's, and Mary Ellen's stories. Although she prides herself on her ability to communicate with patients, even she admits there are days when communication breaks down. First of all, it's exhausting to listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. It's something I really value and uh, want as myself as a patient. I want somebody who's going to really listen. And it's something I want to provide to patients. Sometimes I am a little bit listened out. It is hard for doctors to listen and listen and listen patient after patient, especially when we're incentivized to see more patients and there's short time frames. And we don't have enough time to, to restore, to reflect, to kind of recharge. So I think that's part of it. I think it's partly the way we're trained to start asking questions. When did it start? Where does it hurt? How long does it last? You know, what makes it better? What makes it worse? Those don't encourage this active listening, listening for the narrative of what the patient's telling you. Some people would really want the doctor to be like, how are you feeling about that? How are you doing with this? And some people just want to know that the doctor hears them. So, you know, the way patients perceive being listened to is very different. You yeah. mentioned uh, the EMR, the electronic medical record. It is mm -hmm. so disconcerting to me to not have a doctor look at me mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I'm talking. It's a completely different experience because you really feel like, even if you are being listened to, you feel like you're not being listened mm -hmm. to. Is it disconcerting for doctors as well? Well, I know it is in the way that it, how much of our life it sucks up, how much time and energy it takes to make sure we have all the documentation in place. Things like that are hugely frustrating. So doctors are very frustrated with the amount of time they spend documenting and dealing with the EMR. We didn't you know, go into the 
medical profession to spend time with a computer, and we spend much more time with the computer. Back to Jennifer Grayson, who who had a thyroid problem, and her symptoms, the symptoms she's described, I mean, really, you know, debilitating, terrible. It kind of, it, it ruined her college years. The, the original doctor she went to immediately did a thyroid exam because it seemed like all the symptomology was heading in that direction, but it test came up negative. So what do you do when when you instinctively think, as the doctor did, this has to be a thyroid problem, test comes up negative, and clearly, ultimately, it was a thyroid problem, but it required a different test, it required different kinds of medication. So hearing that whole story, what does the doctor say to themselves when they get a test result back that they don't expect? And what should a patient do? You know, good for her that she kept going and kept going until she found somebody that could help her. And it's one of the things I love about alternative medicine is that it pushes the boundaries of what we think we know and what we don't and what we're doing. I hate how conventional medicine often says, you know, if we don't have a label for it, you don't actually have it. Well, also so many women ultimately are told, we think you're depressed. There is incredible overlap with people who've had traumatic life experiences and their body manifesting bizarre, unusual things later on down the road. It doesn't mean it's all in their head, but that person, you know, had a profound, you know, event happen to them. Those things have a role and they make a huge difference in our health. We don't know why all those childhood experiences lead to increased mortality, increased morbidity, but um, but it's still an important factor that we aren't asking the questions about. I've started trying to do the adverse childhood experiences uh, scoring sheet in my office on occasion if, when I remember when I have time, um, just because it's like, wow, okay, wow, yeah, no wonder why you <laughs> have so many health problems. Emily Abel, who had the extreme post-cancer fatigue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she was talking about, in terms of talking to her doctor, the doctor she was seeing the most was the doctor who had treated her cancer. Right. And she just wanted that doctor to concentrate on keeping her well, keeping the cancer away, and so didn't want to bother mm-hmm, her. Mm-hmm. And that's the way she kind of framed it, didn't yeah. want to bother her right. with this thing that had debilitated her entire life. Mm-hmm. So what do doctors do about that? I mean, you can only know what patients tell you. Exactly. I think that's common, though, especially with like a, a life-threatening illness like that. That you know, this is your this is your 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 superpower, your 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 savior, your hero. You're not going to do anything to threaten that relationship or to also reveal that they don't have all the answers. And there is so much we don't know about the human body and about our illnesses and the way they manifest. And and that's scary for people. When Emily was talking about how she, you know, she felt like her cancer was significant, her fatigue less so, she didn't want to bother her cancer specialist, this is very common among specialists, that when you go to a specialist, you're there for a very, very narrow Mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering... Do specialists bring in, the, bring in the primary care physician enough? I don't think primary care does as good of a job of, of distributing our notes to all the different specialists our patients see. I, I was just thinking about that the other day. I was like, that would probably be really helpful to my patients if, if the, you know, the specialists that they see could see my notes. We're just not set up to do that as easily. We're kind of more siloed. There are a lot of things we don't solve and figure out. And, uh, you know, even if you do your darndest to find you know, someone who can help you. And it can get really exhausting, especially when you already are exhausted or sick, to keep looking for another opinion, another perspective. 
providers lose hope too and don't feel confident that they can continue to keep finding ideas. And also the nature of illness evolves over time. And sometimes it takes the body a while to kind of reveal itself to for tests to become positive. Like autoimmune diseases, you often don't know early on. Let's talk about Mary Ellen Croteau a little bit, the artist with mm-hmm, the respiratory mm-hmm. ailment. They noticed something on an x-ray, which she never really described what it was, but they knew it was problematic and they sent her to a pulmonary specialist. You know, the doctor said to her, the first thing out of his mouth is, you have to stop working. And she reacted to that very negatively. I mean, yeah. her her entire identity is wrapped up in yep. being an artist. Mm-hmm. And she said, He does not know anything about what I do. He did not ask me any specifics or particulars. Yeah. So there was no shared decision-making there. There was no understanding of what is this person's life actually like? What are they doing? What's their work? You know, what medium are they working with? None of that. And so, so yeah, she wasn't included in that process. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. And But if the patient is not ready for it, doesn't want to hear it, then it's that's not that helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because some doctors can just, you know, wash their hands of it and say, I did my job. I told her what she needs to do. And others still might realize, wait a minute, I need to look at this from the patient's perspective. And if I really want to help her, I need to be able to, to begin where she is beginning. We need some shared decision-making here mm-hmm. and a shared perspective yeah. on how the patient is viewing this. You know, I think doctors use a shortcut frequently. You know, again, it's this time issue. It's how much energy do they have to listen to all the details. And so they, you know, do a shortcut pronouncement and don't get to know the patient's story. And I'm sure I've done it many times. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, you know, trying to help somebody quit smoking. We can say, quit smoking. Or we can say, tell me about what you love about smoking and what gets in the way of you stopping. To me, I can't think of many things health-wise that are more frustrating. Because chronic illness, by its very definition, can be treatable, but it's chronic. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to learn to live with it. So this is an incredibly difficult thing Mm -hmm. for the patient. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine very frustrating for a doctor because part Mm -hmm. of what you want to do is just make people better and get satisfaction from that. And actually, one of the factors in burnout is when we don't feel like we're efficacious. So if we're doing all this work, we're trying all these things, we're giving all this advice, and yet we don't see the person getting better, we feel like, what am I here for? When I was a resident, I worked with an orthopod. He got more gifts from patients than I ever saw anybody get because I have a broken knee. I'm going to give you a new knee. Very gratifying. Treating people's blood pressure, diabetes, um, any of those things, not particularly gratifying. People aren't very excited when you say, okay, you know, (laughs) these are the medications you need to take. One of the things I love about lifestyle changes is that, wow, look what I did, but maintaining them over the long term, especially when they live with people who eat junk food and don't exercise and smoke, um, it's it's incredibly difficult. It's, it's the area of medicine that I'm most excited about because it has the potential for that person to get better, um, and it is essential to anybody with chronic illness, but... I, I get exhausted, <laughs> I get exhausted trying to, to encourage people to do it. This came at a really interesting time to do this because I have several patients right now that have bizarre constellations of symptoms that I don't know the answer for. They're young people. Um, you know, many people have suggested that it's anxiety. Both of them don't think that's what it is. I'm not quite sure where we're going to go, what we're going to do. Um, this reminded me to sit down and do a, a lifelong timeline with them both to get that kind of information. 
So that that was really interesting to think about them in the context of these three women. I don't know everything about medicine. I never will. But I do know that when I have really good patient skills and listening, I have much more job satisfaction. I have much better relationships with my patients. And and then I say, well, you know, I don't know everything about your problem. Let's get help. Let me learn more. Jennifer's, Emily's, and Mary Ellen's stories have common threads. Chronic illnesses are difficult to diagnose. Many patients find themselves going from doctor to doctor. Some doctors tend to be dismissive, especially with women. Others can be paternalistic. In Mary Ellen's case, one physician told her to stop working without even asking her what she does. But excellent doctors are out there, as Jennifer discovered. As our three guests learned, be persistent, educate yourself, and don't stop looking for a doctor you can work with. Thank you for listening to Lifespan. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our executive producer and audio engineer. I'm your host and executive producer, Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University. For more information about Lifespan, go to woub.org slash listen. Join us for our next episode of Lifespan when we talk about end-of-life care. The show is particularly personal for me. You'll hear a series of conversations my brother and I had with our mother after her primary care physician discovered a spot on her lung. We talked to her about the decisions she makes about treatment as she sees various oncologists. And later, my brother and I reflect on her death from lung cancer 14 months after her doctor noticed that spot on a happenstance x-ray.